Please take your Bibles now again and turn to Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. And Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilion's and all that was Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among the, his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built up the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Well, it is probably not a stretch to say that part of what makes a story or a movie great is the ending. When you think of some of the greatest movies of all time, 
their iconic endings come to mind. Think of the movie Casablanca and that last line where Rick turns to Louis and says, Louis, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Or the movie, one of my favorites, Shawshank Redemption, where you get at the end of that movie, you get the reunion between Andy and Red, who have been friends for many years in prison. And now that they're out of prison, they meet together on that beach in Mexico. Or another one of my favorite movies, the movie Inception, where you get this mind-twisting movie, and at the end, you get this ambiguous spinning top that lets you wonder, it's like, is he still, is he in reality, or is he still in a dream within a dream? This movie ends and kind of gives you this feeling of, uh, of ambiguity. The point being, in order to tell a good story, you have to have a good ending. The same goes with biblical stories. In fact, the entire Bible is one big story of redemptive history. Beginning in Genesis with creation and fall, we see how mankind fell from glory, being in perfect communion with God and through our creator into a state of sin and misery. But we know how the story ends, right, in the book of Revelation where the new heavens and the new earth come down and we know that those who are in Christ will be in perfect union with God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. It is indeed a wonderful ending. The vast scope of redemptive history tells this overarching story of redemption, of buying back, of saving. And the story of Ruth here is, in a sense, a story of redemptive history in microcosm, in short form. It is a little mini story of redemptive history. Many of the themes you see throughout redemptive history are played out here in the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz. And as we come to the end of this beautiful story, we will see not only the redemption of Ruth and Naomi by Boaz, but also hope. Hope for the redemption of all mankind through the line of Messiah. And that's the main idea I want to get to you this morning is that the Lord accomplishes redemption through the line of Messiah. The Lord accomplishes redemption through the line of Messiah. So as we look at this passage this morning in Ruth chapter 4, it will break down into three parts. In verses 1 through 6, we're going to see a gathering at the city gates as Boaz gathers the people together to present his plan. And then in verses 7 through 12, we're going to see Boaz actually redeem Ruth. And then finally, in verses 13 through 22, we're going to see Yahweh, or the Lord, redeems Naomi and us. How he redeems Naomi and us. Well, as we look at verses 1 through 6, Act 4, or chapter 4, in this little four-part play, picks up pretty much where Act 3 leaves off. If you recall, again, at the end of chapter 3, Naomi tells Ruth to wait for the man Boaz, for he will not rest, but he will settle the matter today. So the, the, the change in time from the end of chapter 3 to chapter 4 is an evening, one night. So Boaz says, I will settle this matter today, and here we are, the next day, he is getting ready to settle the matter. And sure enough, Boaz is seen that very morning going up to the city gate and sitting down there. Now the question is, what is, okay, what's so special about the city gate? What does that mean? Well, the city gate 
was where an important place in ancient Near Eastern cultures. The city gate was the place where important business was conducted and where uh, certain legal matters were adjudicated. It was basically like a, co- a combined town hall and courthouse. So going up to the city gates would be the equivalent of us going over to Clay Center, to the courthouse in Clay Center, or maybe going over to wherever it is in Geneva. It is going to the place where important decisions are, are made. That is what the city gates are. And notice again here in, this, in, the, in these verses, you see, and behold, you see this again, this language of coincidence, this language of all of a sudden this guy comes showing, you know, he starts to show up. But we know from this story that there is no such thing as coincidence, right? It is the invisible hand of the Lord moving to bless his people. And here, coincidence, uh, behold, the other redeemer shows up. And so Boaz invites him to join him at the city gate. Now, again, remember, we've kind of pointed this out at various points of the story of Ruth, the ironic sense of humor of the author, how he likes to make word plays, how he likes to sort of uh, make puns in a sense. Remember, there was a famine in Bethlehem. There was, the, there was no bread in the house of bread and, and you know, things like that. Well, here, um, the text reads where Boaz says, turn aside, friend, sit down here. That's how Boaz greets the other redeemer. He calls him friend. Now, the word friend here is a kind of a weird little Hebrew idiom. It, the, 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 the phrase itself is poloni almoni. And it sounds like he is a sort of like an Italian mafioso guy, right? Poloni almoni comes here. But literally what the Hebrew means is a certain so-and-so. This is, this is his name. He is Mr. So-and-so. Now, the idea here is he is essentially like the man with no name. But not in a cool, like Clint Eastwood, man with no name kind of way, but in a kind of lame, boring, man with no name kind of way. Now, get this. How insignificant do you have to be that the Bible writer doesn't even bother to give you a name? How insignificant do you have to be? Typically, names in the Bible mean something, right? Like in the case of Naomi, she was pleasant. But when she came back home at the end of chapter one, she says, don't call me pleasant because nothing pleasant has happened to me. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. We also learn that like uh, Elimelech, his name means my God is king. It's kind of ironic because he leaves the land of the king. Here, this guy doesn't even have a name. He's just nameless. He is Mr. So-and-so. Who cares about this guy? So now here we see Boaz to Mr. So-and-so. He's going to kind of play a little game of let's make a deal here. So in front of the town elders, Boaz relates the situation to Mr. So-and-so. He says, Naomi's back in town. And she's now selling the land that belongs to Elimelech, our relative. Now again, remember, Boaz and Mr. So-and-so are part of the clan of Elimelech. It just so happens that in the line of succession, Mr. So-and-so is closer to Elimelech than Boaz is. And, and so here he's drawing on this connection here, uh, namely that Elimelech, her dead husband, also happens to be part of our clan. And he also says that Naomi's situation is so dire. She is without a husband. She is without children. She is a widow. She has no way to fend for herself, no way to provide for herself. She, she has to sell her land in order to make ends meet. Now at this point, Boaz invokes the kinsman redeemer law that you can find in Leviticus 25, 25. That law states, 
If brother, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. Just a little bit of background on this. The land is very important in the concept of the Jewish faith here. The land was the promised land, right? God gave this land to them. So the land was very important. And, and if you had to sell your land in order to make ends meet, it was, it was incumbent upon someone else in the family to be able to buy that land back, to keep it in the family, because it was part of what God had promised to you as one of his children, to one of his children of Israel. Now, of course, there was also in the, in the, in the law, the, the, the law of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee, which was every 50 years, any debts that were, uh, were held were canceled, and property that was sold because of this would be returned back to the people. God very much wanted his people to maintain their property because, in a sense, the land is sort of a picture of, of the eternal state. The, Sabbath, the eternal Sabbath rest, the eternal promised land that we will receive when Christ returns. All this to say that here he, he is invoking this kinsman redeemer law to this Mr. So-and-so saying it is your duty if you so choose to take it. You know, your mission, if you so choose to take it, is to buy back Naomi's land so that it'll stay in our clan. This land belongs to our clan. Mosaic law says we must redeem it so the land will stay with the clan. Now you're the nearest redeemer. That's what Boaz is in a sense saying. So if you were to redeem the land, not only would it, you help out poor Naomi, you would be able to give her some funds so she can survive, but then you will be able to also add this land to your inheritance. Otherwise, if you don't want to redeem it, I guess it'll just fall on, on my shoulders. It's almost as if Boaz is going up to Mr. So-and-so and making him an offer he can't refuse. And of course, the offer seems so enticing to Mr. So-and-so that he instantly agrees to redeem the property. Now, here comes the other shoe. The other shoe is about to drop. Just as Mr. So-and-so is beginning to walk away, counting the dollar signs in his head, Boaz now lets the other shoe drop. He says, oh, by the way, you do know that if you claim the land of Naomi, you also have to claim uh, Ruth the Moabite. And of course, according to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, you have to marry her. And any children born to you and Ruth, they will inherit the field. Now, one can almost imagine Mr. So-and-so doing the math in his head, pulls out his little pocket Torah, opens it up to Deuteronomy 25, 5 through 6, and reads, If brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. That's an important phrase, and we'll get to that in a second. In a sense, what's happening here is because Mr. So-and-so is close to Elimelech, and Ruth is a widow. He is required to marry Ruth. And then any children, the first child born of that union, then becomes the one who inherits the land that is Naomi's. So whereas before he was counting dollar signs in his head, thinking I can gather this land and sort of incorporate it into my property. Now he realizes if I have to marry Ruth and if we have a son, he gets the land. 
So I'm going to be out a lot of money is what he's thinking. Okay, that's the point. Mr. Mr. So-and-so says, well, this is too rich for my blood. And he backs out of the deal. And he says, defers to Boaz. He says, go ahead, you redeem it. Now, lest we start thinking, wow, that Mr. So-and-so, how selfish can he be? We all act like Mr. So-and-so sometimes, right? I mean, I'm sure I, I, I can certainly in my own life think of times where I have cost, counted the cost of following Jesus and came up and found out that the cost of following Jesus was perhaps a little too high, a little too rich for my blood. Just like the rich young ruler in Luke 18, we're all excited about entering the kingdom of God, but then we're, when presented with the costs, sometimes we walk away sad. The cost of mercy to the widow, to the orphan and the foreigner can be costly at times. The cost of evangelizing the lost and outcast members of society can require sacrifice. Sometimes it could require the loss of a job, the loss of reputation. Sometimes it could bring on the ridicule of the world. Mr. So-and-so here, the man with no name, was using the calculus of this world and coming up with a result that showed that he was in a losing proposition. So he cut bait and left. He was not willing to pay the costs. He looked at it and said, too rich for my blood. I don't want to shell out a bunch of money, take a bunch of land, then give it away to somebody who's not even really my kid. However, as we learned last week in Ruth 3, Boaz had already counted the costs. And he already counted himself not only willing to redeem the land for Naomi, but also to take on Ruth as his wife. And he trusted God to be faithful. He showed himself to be a worthy man. It's the whole point of Boaz being here. He is a worthy man. And he has shown this all throughout the book of Ruth. And the irony here, of course, is the man with no name, Mr. So-and-so, was afraid to perpetuate the name of the dead. He was, he was afraid to, to perpetuate the name of Elimelech and the name of Elimelech's clan. And himself now, this Mr. So-and-so, would forever remain Nameless. We don't know his name. We've never known his name. But thanks be to God that our salvation is not dependent on how willing we are to sacrifice for the poor and needy, but on the fact that Jesus Christ was not only willing to pay the price, but actually did pay the price. Amen? The worthiness of Boaz or the unworthiness of Mr. So-and-so is not based on anything they do or don't do but is in whom they trust or in whom they don't trust. Boaz was a worthy man because he trusted in God as his rock, as his refuge, and as his deliverer. And Mr. So-and-so was likewise unworthy because he trusted in his riches. He trusted in only what his eyes could see. He could not see the blessings that would unfold. Moreover, Boaz's willingness to redeem Ruth and Naomi flowed out of a sense of gratitude for all that God had done in his life. In fact, his willingness to marry Ruth would probably be a losing prospect for him. Both socially, marrying a foreigner, marrying a Moabitess, but also financially, as he would have to pay to buy the field, he would have to pay the bride price, and then all of that would then go to the son of their union. 
but he was attracted by Ruth's chesed, her kindness. He was attracted by her above and beyond kindness. He was attracted by the fact that she was a worthy woman. This is the same kindness that Yahweh, God, shows to his people, Israel. And it's the same kindness that Jesus shows to us, his body, the church. Now, as we move on to verses 7 through 12, we're going to actually see here now Boaz actually redeeming Ruth. So after Mr. So-and-so agrees to relinquish his right of redemption to Boaz, we see the official transaction take place in verses 7 through 8. This idea with the shoe thing. It's just a uh, sort of a traditional way of how they seal the deal, basically. And then in verses 9 and 10, Boaz then proclaims to all who are present that he has bought the field of Naomi, the land that belonged to Elimelech, and that he's also taken Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malone, to be his wife. Boaz publicly and willingly takes on the role of a kinsman redeemer. He publicly states that he will marry Ruth to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. He is willing to perpetuate the name of Elimelech. He is willing to perpetuate the name of the dead. And he ensures then that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers. Now, after Boaz proclaims what he will do, the witnesses who had been assembled all acknowledge the legitimacy of the transaction. And then in unison, they pronounce a blessing on Boaz. First, they pray that Ruth will be like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Again, what does this mean? Essentially, Rachel and Leah, they were the wives of Jacob. And both of them were at one time barren, like Ruth was presumably barren. And then the Lord had opened up their wombs. And then these two women bore the children who would eventually make up the nation of Israel. The elders here are praying that Ruth will be as fruitful and as prosperous as both Rachel and Leah. And then secondly, the elders pray that the house of Boaz would be like the house of Perez. Again, who's Perez? Long story, but essentially Perez is the son of Judah. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. And there's a sordid story about all this in Genesis 38 that involves Tamar and Judah. Tamar was a woman that Judah had gotten to marry one of his sons. He had three sons. And she marries the first son, the son dies. She marries the second son, that son dies. And then Judah's like, well, I don't want to give you my third son. Seems like you're cursed. All my sons die when they marry you. So why don't you wait till he grows up and becomes an adult? And then we'll talk about this later. So then Tamar goes off and, and then it appears like Judah has forgotten this years later. And then Tamar comes and she dresses up as a prostitute and seduces Judah. And then they have a child and that child is Paris. Long story. It's a very sordid story. But it's, you can find this in Genesis 38. What's the point of all that? The point of all that is that some people see a number of parallels between the story of Ruth and the story of Tamar and Judah, but there are also significant differences. But the point is this. The bottom line is this, is that God is both willing and able to work in both of these situations, Ruth and Boaz, Tamar and Judah, for his sovereign purposes. This morning, we read through the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And did you catch the number of women and foreigners that were included in that genealogy? 
both of which would not normally be included in a Jewish genealogy. Again, we see Tamar, we just talked about her, a Canaanite woman who dressed up as a prostitute to seduce Judah. We see Rahab, who was an actual prostitute, is included in the genealogy of Jesus. We see our very own Ruth, who was a Moabite widow, included in the genealogy of Jesus. And then finally, there's Bathsheba, who had an affair with King David. She is included in the genealogy of Jesus. All of these women, and of course a bunch of foreigners, along with some very, very, very flawed men as well, are all included and prominently displayed in the genealogy of Jesus, the very Son of God. And what does this suggest? It suggests that God can draw a straight line with some very, very crooked sticks. And we are all crooked sticks, right? Remember, God accomplishes redemption through the line of Messiah, and we're witnessing that right here. All of these crooked people are all in the line of Messiah, the very people whom Jesus came to save and redeem. Let's go back to Boaz for a moment. Boaz was true to his word. He promised Ruth that one way or the other, Ruth and Naomi would be redeemed. And here at the city gate, we now are seeing redemption accomplished. Boaz, before the gathered witnesses of the city leaders, commits to taking on the role of a kinsman redeemer and paying the redemption price. He counted the cost and he made the choice. He pledged to perpetuate the name of the dead. And in so doing, God would establish his name. His name is forever immortalized in the story of Ruth. And it is included in all of the genealogies of Jesus. Boaz is remembered to this day. People name their kids Boaz. They don't name their kids Poloni Almoni, right? (laughs) Again, we can look at Boaz and say that we too should be people who are true to their word and keep their promises, who look beyond the world's way of counting things and commit to the godly, worthy path. But as much as we can focus on what Boaz did, we need to focus on who Boaz typifies, who he points to. And we've said this many, many times throughout this series. Boaz exemplifies Jesus Christ in this scene. The redemption Boaz accomplished is a pointer to a far greater redemption that we have in Christ, the one that he had accomplished on the cross. When Boaz proclaims, Ruth, I have bought to be my wife, one can almost picture Jesus Christ himself proclaiming the church, I have bought to be my bride. And in so doing, he has perpetuated the name of the dead and has given them everlasting life. Now we come to the last act of the last scene in the story of Ruth in verses 13 through 22. After redeeming Ruth and Naomi, we see that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. This is the moment we've all been waiting for, right? The the, the romantic comedy is sealed. The, The heroes and the heroine are together at last. All the dramatic tension in the first three chapters has finally resolved itself. Boaz and Ruth are married A worthy man and a worthy woman become one flesh. And furthermore, the Lord blesses the union with children. 
This is interesting. This is interestingly the only t- second time that the Lord is mentioned here where it says in verse 13 that the Lord gave Ruth conception. It's the only the second time the Lord is actively mentioned taking a part in the affairs of Ruth. And here he gives Ruth conception. Back in chapter 1 verse 6, we are told the Lord had visited his people and given them food. Ruth, who had lost her husband and given up mother and father, home and gods and family and land and everything to cling to Ruth, or to cling to Naomi, has been blessed with a husband, a home, a people, and children, and a merciful covenant-keeping God who blesses us beyond recognition. Now, how did Naomi fare in verses 14 through 16? Well, Naomi, who went away full and came back empty, who went away pleasant and came back bitter, she is declared by the women of the town, blessed by the Lord. She was not empty. She was never empty. The Lord had not left her without a redeemer. The invisible hand of the Lord had sovereignly orchestrated the events of Naomi's life to bring her to this point. And the Lord provided redemption to Naomi. Now, the redemption, though, was not accomplished for Naomi by Boaz. It wasn't mediated by Boaz, but it was mediated through the child that Ruth and Boaz had. It was at the birth of the son of Ruth and Boaz that the women make mention and proclaim that the Lord has brought you redemption. And look what the women say about the newborn son. May his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life. Naomi thought she had lost everything. And now this son, this beautiful baby boy brought to her by Ruth and Boaz is a restorer of life. To a woman who thought she was dead. To a woman who thought she had lost everything. Looking ahead to verse 17, we see that indeed the child's name, which will be Obed, will be renowned. And that he will be a restorer of life, for he is the grandfather of David, the great king. And the women have even more to say regarding Naomi's daughter-in-law, Ruth. The women recognize that Ruth, who gave birth to Naomi's ultimate redeemer, loves Naomi. And they say that she is worth to you more than seven sons. What an awesome statement this is. Naomi went out with two sons and came back with seven sons in the form of Ruth. Moreover, that number seven is the number that expresses fullness. It expresses completeness. No more can Naomi say that she went out full and came back empty, for she has returned home with complete fullness from the Lord in the person of Ruth. She has been brought to fullness through famine. And then in verses 18 through 22, these verses sort of provide an epilogue to the story of Ruth. It's sort of a look back and a look forward. The town elders had prayed that the house of Boaz would be like the house of Perez because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by Ruth. And here in these verses, you see a genealogy of Perez. As we know from this genealogy and the one that is listed in Matthew chapter 1, the Parasite clan, not the Parasite clan, the Parasite clan is the royal line. 
Kings come from this line. Starting with David, many kings came from the, from the union of Ruth and Boaz. And most important of all, we see in Matthew 1.16, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. May his name be renowned. He shall be a restorer of life. The story of redemption that we see here in the book of Ruth was sovereignly orchestrated by the Lord, by the invisible hand of the Lord to provide redemption for the whole world through Jesus, who is called the Christ. Again, if you recall in Ruth 1, in the first sermon in the series that we mentioned, that it is very hard oftentimes to see the hand of the Lord working in your life when you are in the midst of troubles. Sometimes we can all, all we can focus on is feeling that the hand of the Lord has gone out empty or hard against me, that we went away full and came back empty. But if the story of Ruth teaches us anything, it teaches us this, that the Lord never takes away anything that he won't repay a hundredfold and then also give us eternal life. Naomi left with two sons and she came back with seven in the person of Ruth. And beloved, if the Lord has taken something away from you, if you feel like the Lord has gone on heavy against you and has taken something from you, rest assured that his invisible hand will sovereignly orchestrate things in your life for your good and his glory, and he will restore above and beyond anything that you may think you have lost. And for those of us in Jesus Christ, we have far more than we could ever hope or dare to dream. This is what we who are on this side of glory need to understand. Sometimes we can get so hung up about things under the sun that we lose sight of the one and only son, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul wrote this to the church of Philippi. He said, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The good news for New Testament saints is that we all live in the time of promise fulfilled. We know that all of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. As we bring this series of book, uh, on the book of Ruth to a close, I want to touch on something I said previously at the outset of this series. One of the reasons or purposes for the writing of the book of Ruth was uh, to, to point to King David. Again, remember, the book of Ruth takes place in the time of the judges, a time of chaos, a time of debauchery, a time where there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it was written during the time, not the, the, the events were written during the time of the judges, but the book itself was written most likely during the time when David was trying to bring the divided kingdom together under one king. 
And there's some, I think there's a lot of truth to this, that this was an attempt to, uh, to point to David. During the time of the judges, what was Israel's most pressing need? They needed a king. They needed someone who would lead them in righteousness. Not these flawed tribal leaders called the judges who were all very flawed. They needed a king. And the book of Ruth concludes with a genealogy that goes up to David, the great king. This beautiful story that took place during one of the most chaotic times in Israel's history points its audience to the one man who would bring peace, who would bring honor and stability to a nation that dearly, dearly needed these things. However, we know the rest of the story, right, beloved? We know that Israel's kings could not provide lasting peace. Many of them were evil and wicked and led the people astray which ultimately led to the people being exiled. The truth of the matter is that no earthly king can ever provide eternal, lasting peace. We don't need a genealogy that ends as the book of Ruth ends with David, but we need a genealogy that begins like the book of Matthew that points to Jesus Christ. It is interesting that you have all these genealogies in the Old Testament and they're all leading somewhere. And then you get the genealogy that opens up the New Testament. And that's the last time you ever see a genealogy ever again. And the point of that is because the genealogies have served their purpose. They have brought you to the Christ. That is what the purpose of all the Old Testament was, to bring forth the Christ. What did the angel say to to Joseph? He said, Mary will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Before we need a king, we need a savior. And Jesus is the one who makes peace between us and a holy God by purchasing redemption through his death and resurrection. And then through our repentance and faith in Christ's person and work, we have been reconciled. Our sin debt has been paid and we have been ushered into God's glorious kingdom. Beloved, if you do not know this truth, I pray that you will accept Christ in your hearts, for he is the only one who can save. And if you do know this peace, then rest in Christ, trust in Christ, and hope in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.